Um, this, this past week, I was, uh, well, a few of us were eating dinner and we were talking. And uh, I asked this one fella, I said, hey, are you um, doing anything for, you have anything planned for your wife for Valentine's Day? And he said, uh, Valentine's Day? Uh, when is it? <laughs> and so we responded, I guess not. <laughs> uh, Valentine's Day, for those who don't know, is tomorrow. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And uh, if you're new here, it's very good that you've come. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor DL. The D stands for doctor and the L stands for love. So you've come at a, on a good day, especially if you don't know uh, what tomorrow is. Uh, Valentine's Day, we're going to talk a little bit about love and talk a little bit about, about marriage. And again, if you're new, you'll recognize that we have some uh, young folks here and some older folks. We're an intergenerational congregation. We worship uh, young and old alike. And our desire is to see um, parenting in the pew, mentoring as we worship, uh, kind of observing and seeing at, as well as receiving uh, from the other half, so to speak, of, of our congregation. So this is who we're about. Uh, and like we often uh, do here, I, I want to share with you wisdom about love and marriage as it comes from the lips of, of children. So uh, I think this is interesting here. Um, some children were asked about love and about marriage and, and what does love mean. And here's what Tommy, six years old, says: Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. That's what love means to a six-year-old. Here's Chris, age seven. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Brad Pitt. That's love. Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. I have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> Uh, what about marriage? <laughs> is it better to be single or married? Anita, age nine. It is better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need somebody to clean up after them. Yeah, that's wow on a lot of different levels. Will, age seven. It gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. <laughs> wonder what kind of parents he has, right? How do people in love typically behave? Wendy, age eight, when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down and don't get up for at least an hour. <laughs> uh, how do you make love endure? Aaron, age eight, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up love. <laughs> and you kind of wonder what kind of dad he had, right? Forgetting his wife's name, perhaps. David, age eight, be a good kisser. That will make your wife forget you never take out the trash. What should you look for in a spouse? Christine, age nine. Beauty is only skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. As nine years old, already a gold digger. Isn't it? <laughs> what are some surefire ways to make someone fall in love with you? Camille, age nine. Shake your hips and hope for the best. Where do we get these ideas from? I feel sorry for some of these children, but where do we get these ideas of love and marriage from? Where do you get your ideas about love and marriage from? Because if we get them from the wrong place, if we get them from the wrong place, it can be very, very, very dangerous. You know, today I, I want to talk about marriage as we began this series on relationships redeemed last week. And I, I know some of you who are married are going to feel like, oh, you know what? He keeps looking at me when he makes his point. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, believe me, I'm critiquing myself hardest 
of anybody here. Because I realize this stuff is really hard. But for those of you who are single, you might think, well, this has nothing to do with me, especially I'm a sixth grader. But I want to say this. Look, if we don't understand what marriage is according to the biblical definition, then one day, 50 years later, some preacher is going to be talking about your answers to marriage and making fun of you. Because if we don't understand where marriage comes from and what God's design for marriage is, then we're walking down a very dangerous path. Path. I fear for the marriages of some of these children. Shake your hips and hope for the best. Don't forget your wife's name. Kiss and then they'll forget that you don't do anything around the house, you lazy little bum, right? If we don't understand where our teaching for marriage comes from, then we can have a very skewed understanding about love and about marriage. And we'll go on into marriage with all of these myths and we'll be completely, completely blindsided. So I want to talk about love. I want to talk about marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look starting at verse 21 and then read until verse uh, 33 here. So we uh, looked into this. And again, we we don't have much time. I don't have all the time to talk about everything there is about marriage. In fact, I wrote this this sermon out. And then yesterday I I said to Olive, I was like, oh, my gosh, this sermon is two hours long. We're not going to be done until 3 o'clock. And I've got to slice like a ninja, cut like a razor blade to get this down so that it fits into our worship service. How am I going to do this? And, and she looked at me and she said, good luck. <laughs> so I will say this. We're not going to talk about everything there is about marriage. Um, one of my professors used to say, you can't say everything about anything or you'll end up saying nothing. And so I'm not going to say everything about marriage. Today. That's why we have a weekend to remember coming up, right? So that we can all go together and learn more about marriage over a period of five different sessions. But I want to I at least lay the foundation, the groundwork of how the gospel, as it enters into our lives, transforms uh, our view of marriage, especially uh, as it relates to the cultural picture of marriage. Here's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through verse 33. This is God's word. Submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does a church. For we are members of his body. It's for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. We began last week by talking about this uh, idea that everything we talk about the next few weeks is grounded in this, in this verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then from that place, he begins to talk about and, and, and to spell out and flesh out different relationships in which this happens. First is in the husband-wife relationship. Second is in uh, parents and children. And third with slaves and masters. So what does this mean? Why does he talk about, of all the relationships, why does he start at home first? Because we all know that home is the hardest place to live out the gospel, isn't it? I was talking with my uh, cell church on Friday night, 
And uh, a couple of people were agreeing that the hardest, the people that I'm hardest with, the most selfish with is my family and, and my boyfriend. Because they're the closest ones to me. Isn't it hardest to live out the Christian life at home? We can be pretty good Christians outside of the home. But once we get into the home, all of a sudden we have a tendency to lose our religion, don't we? It's at home where people know us the best. It's home where people are closest to us. We don't have to impress them. We let our guards down. They see us unfiltered, unadulterated. They see us in all of our glory and in all of our shame as well. Somebody once said, he whose light shines the furthest shines the brightest closest to home because the gospel needs to affect its power at home first. And if the gospel hasn't transformed our home life, then perhaps the gospel that you and I believe is not good enough. You get that? If the gospel has not transformed our life at home, then it's very possible that the gospel, the good news that we believe is probably not good enough because when it's good and it's that new, then it has a transforming effect on those closest to us. So three things I want to look at here as we look into, um, I, I think the title of this talk is something like how to, how to get them to submit to you or something like that. How to get your spouse to submit to you. It's really not that underhanded. But um, I want to just point out three things. Um, the first one is not really from the text, but it's an exegesis of our culture. The first thing is culture distorts and cheapens God's design for marriage. Right, whether we know this or not, just take a quick look at media, look at music, TV, movies. You look at these things in our culture today, and you'll see very quickly that they cheapen the design that God had intended for marriage. Think about just a, a quick run through of your TV guide. Okay, think of the names of TV shows. Desperate Housewives. Basketball Wives, right? It just talks about these these. Like I said, gold diggers just running around chasing after money and they're fighting with it. the real housewives of whatever city you want to talk about. Right. Bachelor. Bachelor. You date 20 guys, kiss them, make out with them, see how good they are, and then decide which of these you want to marry. It's a really high view of marriage, don't you think? There's a, a, a show that's based around three interrelated uh, related families. Hey, one of them is a homosexual couple males and they've adopted a a little vietnamese girl very very cute there's another one of these families that's related a 60 year old divorcee very old he marries this hot looking latina woman and she's got a teenage son who thinks that his stepdad is a complete dork and a dunce and then the the other family you've got three children a mom and a dad this super passive tries to be so cool dad and this over-aggressive mom, and then you put these things together, and here you have the modern family. And what is our culture teaching us about marriage these days? See, if we don't, as young people, understand the biblical definition and design of marriage, then we're going to grow up thinking that these things are right, and that I should be like Phil Dunphy, or I should be like, uh, you know, Al Bundy, whoever his character is, and I should be like him and just look for this, this complete uh, uh, brainless uh, girl who's, who's just beautiful on the outside. That's it. See, the, the pictures that are painted of marriage are really Glee. Right? Millions of people all over are watching Glee, and they see Rachel with these two fathers, and they think everything's completely fine. And then you watch movies like The Kids Are All Right, where it talks about these uh, two this lesbian couple who are raising children, and they say the kids are all right. But throughout the movie, you see their desperate longing for their dad, Mark Rafala, the, the one who, the, the, who impregnated the, the woman. 
And you see that the kids are not all right because they need a mother and a father according to the design that God had for us. That's what a family is. That's what a marriage is. And we're looking at these things and, and, and slowly we're being brainwashed into thinking that that's all right and that those kids are all right when they're crying out for those things that God originally intended for them to have. In fact, there's a study called the, um, is a study came out, it was called Happily Never After. And it says TV does not present an indifferent picture of marriage as you watch TV. In fact, it says they completely distort and undermine a one-man, one-woman marriage. In fact, they, they did this study. The, the family hour of TV, 8 p.m. 8 p.m. is the family hour. They say there are four times more sex scenes involving non-married couples than there are with married couples. Four times more unmarried couples. And the picture that it paints, according to this study, happily never after, is that marriage, that sex within marriage is boring. It's completely mundane. There's no excitement to it. There's no life to it, and it's much better having sex outside of marriage. Four to one ratio. That's what it's painting. And then as, as, as people get upset about that, they say, you know what? We're, we're just presenting what the public wants to see. You see, culture has a way of distorting and cheapening God's design for marriage. And so it causes people to say, you know what? Why get married then? Why don't I just shack up with somebody? Why don't I just live with somebody? There's another study from the National Study for Mental Health. National Study for Mental Health, and it shows that, that men and women who cohabitate without getting married, the women are four times more likely to experience depression. 71% of women who do that say, you know what, I, I, if I were to do it again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it again. 80% more likely to go through a divorce if they end up getting married. See, this is what our media is pushing and saying, hey, this is what it is. This is what culture is pushing, saying, here's your marriage. And if we don't understand where our sources are coming from, we're going to have a distorted and cheapened view of marriage as it relates to God's design for it. See, this is true today, but it was also true back in Paul's day. In the time when Paul was writing, the culture was distorting views of marriage, and it had gotten so much to the point that God was shaking his head, not literally shaking his head, but shaking his head saying, that's not what I had in mind. See, the Jewish view of marriage, you, you understand the Jewish view of women back then because they would, every Jewish man would pray and get up in the morning and say, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, I'm not a woman. As women were just as good as slaves in those days. That's all they were. Deuteronomy 21 says, a man can divorce a woman for uncleanness, but the way that rabbis interpreted uncleanness could be anything from not looking as good as their neighbor or to spoiling a, a meal in the kitchen. That's what uncleanness meant. So basically, people are getting divorced left and right in Jewish culture. It was even worse in Greek culture. Right? In, in Greek culture, Demosthenes, he said, you know what? Here's, let, let me talk about the women in our society. Prostitutes are for our pleasure. Concubines are for our daily living. Wives, the only reason wives are good for is for cleaning the house and having children. That's all they're good for. And so as you can imagine, divorce, adultery were rampant in Greek culture also. And then Roman culture, the third culture that's mixing in and, and seeping into the mindset of these ancient uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Roman culture was even worse than all of these things. Uh, Roman uh, historian Seneca, he said, you the only reason a woman gets married is so that she can get divorced. Marriage was basically legal prostitution in those days. Another um, Roman historian talked about this one woman who had 23 husbands and she was his 21st wife. So with these views, 
of marriage and family swirling around. And that's the kind of culture that people were living in. And I wonder how much different it is from the culture we're living in today that completely debases and cheapens this God-given beautiful gift, this institution of marriage. And so it's into that kind of a culture that Paul writes these words that would flip everything upside down. Into that culture, he says, and it was kind of like moving into the second point here, God, uh, the gospel redeems God's design for wives and husbands, but first for wives. Into that culture where women were treated as nothing but, but property, treated as nothing but an object. Into that culture, here comes Paul, and he's saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Put the needs of other people ahead of your own out of reverence for Christ. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did for you, put the needs of other people ahead of your own, even women. You remember back in the civil rights movement, right? In the civil rights movement, African-Americans were considered second class. They were considered nobodies, right? Not only African-Americans, but people like you and me, Asian face, anything that was not a Caucasian face, we were treated as second class citizens. And so when the civil rights movement came and said, you know what, they have rights, they have dignity, all of a sudden everyone's like, no way, this is going to completely change our culture, it's going to change our society. And that's what the people of Ephesus were reading here. When Paul says, you know what, you need to submit to one another, not just, not just women submit to men, that's what's always been happening, but men need to submit to women also. They're like, hold on, Paul. What kind of drug are you smoking? What kind of drug, what, what, what's going on in your head? What are you talking about? Because this is going to flip our society upside down. If women all of a sudden are elevated to equal position as men, what is this going to do to our culture? And Paul's saying the gospel is that transformative. And it is that redemptive to change even what was for, for ages past this long-held understanding of gender roles and of status and of worth. And he's saying, has this affected your culture and your life and your marriage and your view of marriage? What the gospel does here is it redeems God's design for wives. He says in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is ahead of the wife as Christ is ahead of the church, his body of which he's a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. When Paul gives his command to submit to one another, mutual submission, He's not saying that in mutually submitting, okay, everyone is, is, is all equal. We have no leaders here anymore. We can just do whatever we want to do. There's no distinction between men and women. Of course there is a distinction. Just look at each other. You're not going to say that all of a sudden because of Christ that women are no longer w women and men are no longer men. Of course not. That's silly. But what he is saying is here's our model, Christ and the church. Is there a one-way submission or is it mutual? It's mutual. The church submits to Christ. But Christ submits to the church by laying down his life for it. It doesn't negate the fact that there are responsibilities and roles here. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? It means to acknowledge and to respect his God-given authority and leadership in taking spiritual leadership in the family. That's, that's what it's saying. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying she's a Stepford wife. A robot that says yes, dear, to everything that husband says. Have you seen that movie, Stepford Wives, where the men get tired in this town called Stepford? They, they get tired because their wives are always complaining and nagging, so they, they create them into becoming robots. And everything the man says, 
the, the, the wife says, yes, yes, dear, whatever you say. That's not what submission is. Nor is submission to say, check your brains at the door and do whatever he says as he leads you into sin and your lives fall apart. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you are uh, uh, less educated or less competent than he is. Nor is it saying that you ought to slavishly obey him out of fear. A lot of people have twisted and misinterpreted. A lot of men have twisted and misinterpreted this verse that anytime they say anything, they say the Bible says submit to me in everything. Therefore, even if you're crying, even if your life is completely oppressed, even if I'm a slave driver, you need to submit because that's what the Bible says. That's the crock of (laughs) not good stuff. And that's not what he's saying. Think to submit means to understand that God has created this authority and that leadership, headship does not mean privilege. First and foremost, it means responsibility. Husbands are first and foremost responsible for the spiritual well-being of the family. That's what it's saying. And so in wives submitting to that, one, it's they're acknowledging that, and two, they are respecting their husband. That's what it says at the end of verse 33. It says the wife must respect her husband. So let me ask wives or potential wives, do you acknowledge your husband's role of headship And do you do all that you can to affirm that and to help him to become truly great? Do you do that? And as you do that, do you respect your husband so that the gift of God's headship in him could blossom and could come out so that he could be everything that he was meant to be? Do you respect your husband? Here's three ways to check this is in your thoughts. When you think about your husband, think about your husband. What thoughts come to your mind? Are they respectful thoughts? You think, oh, what an incompetent dolt he is. It's not very respectful. Well, you think about your husband. Do you think respectful thoughts of him? Because what you think about your husband is going to come out in your words and in your actions. What about your words? In your words, do you respect your husband? And, and to single women also, in your words, do you respect other people? You don't have to be married to begin the practices. You could be a sixth grader. Do you respect people with your words? When you talk to your husband, are these words respectful or are they undermining? Are they cutting him down? Are they debasing him? Are they undermining his God-given authority in your home? As you talk about your husband, as you talk about him with other people, when he's not there and other people are talking about their husbands, how do you talk about it? You say, no, my husband's not like that. Oh, my husband, he doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He's so lazy. When he's not there, do you jump in and say, yeah, my husband's just like that. He's just like that. He needs to kiss me so that I forget that he didn't take out the trash. Do we, what about the words that we use to talk about our husband? Are they respectful words? And what about our actions? Are our actions respectful towards our husband or towards other people if you're not married yet? When he says something, do you roll your eyes at him? When he's talking, do you cut him off? so as to cut off every ounce of respect. And I, I, I know I, I may, you, you may feel like, well, you're, you're a guy, you're laying it on us, but don't worry for the guys. We're, we're coming for you. We're looking for you. We're going to find you too. <laughs> but as you think about this, sisters, your actions show respect for your husband or for other people. 
How much do you respect your husband so that he can be everything that he was meant by God to be? In the book of Proverbs, it talks about two kinds of wives. Proverbs 12.4 says, An excellent wife is a crown of honor on a husband's head. Proverbs 25, it says, A quarreling wife is better to live on the corner of your roof than to have a wife who quarrels all the time. Then Proverbs 27 says, A quarreling wife is like rain that drops from the roof. Have you ever been in a rainstorm and rain is dropping, dropping? That's annoying, isn't it? What kind of a wife are you? Are you an excellent wife who respects your husband so that he walks out in public and he's like, I'm so dang proud of the woman that I married. The woman that I married, I love her so much more now than I loved her the day we got married because she is a crown on my head. She's my jewel. She's my prize. Or are you a quarrelsome wife who's always cutting down, disrespecting your husband in front of people when it's just the two of you, undermining his God-given authority? See, I, I love this picture of a quarreling wife is like a, a, a dripping rain. Like, you know, some countries, this is torture. It's not just annoying, it's death. Hey, so it, I think it's called the Chinese water torture, right? Maybe, uh, so here's uh, Daniel and, and Pastor Albert, and, and they're going somewhere, and they've got this top secret information, and they get captured by, oh, you guys look like spies because uh, we, we've seen you around on the Internet, and so... They get captured by these bad guys in, in, in China. And so they're like, tell us the secret. Tell us the secret of, you know, whatever it is. Tell us why, you know, Twilight is so popular in your country. And they're like, okay, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. So they say, well, then we're going to have to torture you to get the secret out of you. So they lay them down. They're lying down. And they're like, Chinese water torture. And they start dropping water on them. Can you imagine that? Just plopping on it's not just annoying. This is painful. Oh, okay, fine, fine. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Now, what the Proverbs, writer of Proverbs is saying, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You want to get the secret out of them fat? You want to get the secret out? Just bring a quarreling wife in here. Get them to nag. Get them to nag. Are you like that? Your husband? Single, all the single ladies. How about you? They're like, oh, bah, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You never do this. Is that you? And you're proud of it that you do that? Now you're probably not very ready to be married, quite frankly. I'm just saying this is what the Bible says, guys. The role of the wife in submitting and the role of the husband, we're both called to submit, but it looks very different between the wife and the husband. In the same way that the way that Christ submits to the church and the church submits to Christ are very different also. But wives submitting to husbands is a picture of respect. Saying, if you respect your husband like this, then you will get your husband to submit to you. Now, to the men. Very interesting here. Because in this culture, men had no responsibility. They just treat women however they want to. Kind of like ancient Korean culture. I just treat them however they want to. Yeah, bring me this, bring me that. Massage my feet, do this, do that, make me a meal, I'm hungry, I'm tired, or whatever it is. That's kind of the way it was in the people of Ephesus. But if you look, this is why I don't like putting it up here. That's why I like looking in your Bible, right? If you have your Bible, if you just look at verse 21 to to 33, you'll see that the command to husbands is about one, two, about two and a half times longer than the command to women. 
Because we got a lot to talk about, men, myself included. The last thing that we see here is that the gospel redeems God's design for, uh, for husbands. Again, the picture of, of, of husbands was we do whatever we want. We're like these cavemen Neanderthal who just grab our, our Jane by her hair and just drag her along. That's what submission is. But all of a sudden, when he says submit to one another, and then he spells it out, he says, this is how. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In understanding headship over the home, here's what it's saying to us men. It's not saying we're leaders without question. It's not saying we're the new Jesus in our home. It's not. It's saying as head of our, of our families, it means that we are now responsible. That's basically all it means. If there's a problem in our home, we are responsible. If there's a problem in our marital relationship, we are responsible. We need to own up to it. Even if it's just 1% our fault, that's our responsibility. This is what it means to be a man. And again, I'm not laying it hard on you. I'm laying it hard on myself too because I realize this is hard stuff. This is really hard. That we are responsible. And I'm not just talking about husbands, but all of you guys. This is us. That we need to take responsibility. We need to man up and be who God calls us to be. That if there's a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the... I'm just kidding. If there's a problem, that's on us. That's our responsibility. Men of God, transformed by the gospel. This is on us. And so he says love. And I'm not going to... I don't have time to talk about everything that love means, but two things I want to mention here I want to point out is one, what kind of love is it? One, it's a sanctifying love. It's a love that makes... Our wives become more like Christ. So brothers, how much are we helping our wives become more like Christ? Their culture will tell you this is what it means to be a man. It means to be able to do this. It means to put food on the table, and we have to do that. It means to be able to to fix these problems around the house, and we need to be able to do that. It means to drive a nice car, and, and that's helpful, and that's cool. But this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a husband, is to make your wife more like Christ. How many times do we complain that she's so unchristlike? She's not patient. She's not loving. She's not submissive. She's not honoring. She's not respectful. She's not these things. But how much do we go to the mat in praying for her to become more like Christ? How much do we actually do something instead of nagging her and pushing her? How much do we do in order to say, this is my responsibility to present her one day to Christ, pure and and, and holy and blameless, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish? How are we doing that? as men of God, as leaders of our family, as leaders of a relationship. Matt Chandler, Chandler, he's a a preacher in Dallas, and he says, I'll tell you why we don't do this. He says, you can't feed somebody if you're starving yourself. I wonder if the reason why we're not feeding our wives is because we're not feeding ourselves spiritually. Could that be? I mean, is it that simple? Are we as men of God helping other people to become more like Christ? 
the end of the day, that's definition number one of what it means to love. See, all of uh, Olivia and my efforts are towards our daughter, Manny, like every day I pray, God, help her to know you, help her to love you, help her to become more like you, to be a child of character and filled with the Spirit. And all of my life, I'm going to seek to do that and to raise her up. And one day when she's 40, 50 years old, I might walk her down the aisle and, and present her to some other <laughs> To present her to some other guy <laughs> and say, now it's your turn. You take her and you make my daughter more like Christ. That's your calling, man of God. So that one day there'll be another presenting when you present her to Jesus. You better. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But this is our calling, to present our wives before Christ one day and say, God, with what you gave me, I helped her to become more like Christ. There you are. Thank you for giving my wife as an amazing gift to me. Good night. Second thing that he says, not only is it a sanctifying love, it's a sacrificial love. In this same way, verse 28, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. I talked about this last week, but the default inclination of our hearts is towards selfishness. Take care of myself, protect myself, feed myself, make myself happy. Paul's saying, now, take that selfish desire and realize that you are one when the two marry for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother, will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In that same way that you're so selfish for your own needs, now be selfish for your wife's needs and sacrifice yourself for her. This is what it means to submit, isn't it? To put her needs, her interests, her desires, her pleasure, her, her, uh, her things before your own. It's in that same way that you're so selfish for yourself. Now do that for her. Sacrifice for her. How are we at doing that? And not, not this heroic, I'm going to die for you, my wife, but dying the little deaths. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm convicted of this myself. How often do we wake up a little bit earlier in order to let our wives sleep a little bit more? One of our fellows whose wife's love language is sleep. We were talking about this the other day. He, uh, he lets his wife sleep in an extra hour or two. And we're like, dang, that's really, uh, what an amazing, amazing sacrifice for the sake of your wife. But what about us? Do we die these little deaths daily in order that she might know that she's loved? For those of you who watch American Idol, I think the story of uh, Chris Medina, you guys have seen it, right? It's a beautiful picture of what it means to sacrifice um, some years ago, three, four years ago, um, she, worked, she was a barista at, at Starbucks, and, and they got engaged at Starbucks. And they said, two years from now, uh, we're going to get married. We're going to save up our money. We're going to walk down that aisle in holy matrimony. And they're so excited. And you see these videos of them, just beautiful couple. He's so in love with her. She's so thrilled to be with him. And this relationship goes on. And, and just two months before they were to get married, she got into a terrible car accident suffered severe brain injury. She was comatose. Doctor said she's not going to recover. She's not going to wake up. And so he said, uh, you know, I, I believe that she is. And, and day by day, he was by her bedside, caring for her. After one and a half months, can you imagine one and a half months 
the love of your life being in a coma. Finally, her eyes open, comes out of her coma. But she's in a severely debilitated state. This beautiful woman, no longer so beautiful, confined to a wheelchair now. And what does he do in that time? He says, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stay with you. And as he gives it, does this American Idol audition, it's, that was uh, last year, October 2009. Now, in February 2011, he's still with her. He wears the engagement ring around his neck, and he says, one day, one day, we're going to get married. One day we are. He said, why do you stay with her? Why is it you, her mom, and, and you, why are you her caretakers? And he says, you know what? It was just a couple weeks away from the day that I was going to say, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in life or in death, till death do us part, that I will be faithful to you. What he says, he says, what kind of man would I be if I walked out on her when she needed me the most? What kind of a man would I be if I walked out on her when she needed me the most? In other words, what kind of man would I be when in her ugliest I stopped loving her. Isn't that when we want to stop loving? When our wives are the most unlike Christ. When our friends are the most unlike Christ. When people are just so disrespectful, so unlovable. See, saints of God, it's when we're the most unlovable that we most need love. Paul says this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Before we were ever the church, before we were ever lovable, when we were this proud, stuck-up, self-centered, self-righteous, I don't need a savior kind of people. Christ came and he died for us. Because if this gospel is big enough to transform the world, then it's big enough to transform you big enough to transform your heart. The only question is, will you let it? The end of this audition, Steven Tyler, Aerosmith, one of the judges, comes up to this, they bring, they bring in the fiance. Steven Tyler's talking with her. And he says, you know what? Your, your fiance, he sings so good. He sings so good. I know why now. Because he's singing to you. Singing to you. Why he sings so good. I think when people see husbands loving our wives in this way, they realize, you know what? I, I, I understand. How can you love your wife when she's like this? How can you love your, your, your friend when they look this ugly? How can you love them in this broken state? Hey, I, I know why. Because you're singing to Jesus. Submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. That's why you sing so good. Because you're singing his song that he sung over you. And he's singing that over your people. Pray together. Now I know it's easy for us to say, yeah, if my husband loved me like that, heck yeah, I would submit to him. Gladly. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, if my wife were to submit to me like that, then it would be so easy for me to love. Yeah, I would love her like she's the only woman Paul's saying and God's saying, you know what? Yeah, you're right. That is how it would be. But you know what? 
It's on you. It's on you. Submit to one another. It's a two-way street. It starts with you. So for all the married folks in here, I want to invite us to take a moment to just confess to the Lord. And I'm sorry, I haven't, I've been so selfish and so self-centered. And I know that my spouse is so hard to love at times. But God, so am I. And yet you love me. Forgive me, God. I can't change him. I can't change her. But let me change what I can through the power of Christ. Father, forgive me and change me. And for the single folks in here, let's pray, God, help me to have a correct view of marriage. The views that culture, even my own parents' marriage put out there can be so skewed and can so cheapen God your design. Help me not to believe those lies. But help me to be a woman who submits and respects. Help me to be a man who loves and sanctifies and sacrifices. God, above all, help us to kneel before the cross to see that when we are most unlovable, you loved us. Because you have loved me, now I can love. Let's pray, confessing, asking God to help us, and then let's pray for our relationships. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your one-day marriage. Pray for your parents' marriage. Pray may our homes be filled with joy and gladness again. Lord, let this be. May my children grow up to see a beautiful picture of marriage. Well, let's take a moment in confession, in responding, and then in dedicating our lives and our families to the Lord God in Let's take a couple moments to pray together like that. Again, if you want to pray aloud, you can. Just pray quietly. If you want to get with your spouse and hold their hand, you can do that. But let's take a moment to pray. Just really respond to his word for a couple moments. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come people just broken by our own sin and asking on behalf of the men, God, that you would forgive us. For so often we have demanded submission. Jesus, you never did that from your church. But you gave and you loved. Forgive us for not loving bravely, courageously, sacrificially, costly, in a sanctifying love, God, forgive us. That you would cleanse us, married and single men alike. 
Forgive us for not being the men that you've called us to be. And that you would forgive any sisters in here who feel like they've fallen short of this. You would forgive for lack of love and respect. And that for all of us in here, that you would shower over us fountains of forgiveness. That our sin would be washed in the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us. That you would help us to see that because of his love, we love others. Because of his love first, we can love you. So help us to give our lives to one another out of our love for Christ. We thank you. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus.